Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Michael Casp. I'm the Director of Business Development for J&J Editorial. Uh, J&J provides publishing services to publishers, societies, and editorial offices. Our show today was inspired by Peer Review Week, which runs from September 11th through the 17th this year. Uh, visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com and follow the hashtag PeerRevWK17 to follow all of the 2017 Peer Review Week events. The theme for this year's Peer Review Week is transparency, hashtag transparency in review. And joining me today to talk about transparency in Peer Review Week is my panel of scholarly publishing luminaries coming from backgrounds ranging from medical research, writing, publishing, philosophy, and ethics. Our panel discussion will be divided into four podcasts, with one posted each day from September 11th through the 14th on the J&J Editorial website, jjeditorial.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at jjeditorial uh, to see all the updates. Our goal for this series is to take a deep and nuanced look into what transparency and peer review can mean. What are the ways that peer review can be more transparent in both traditional and open peer review models? Who are the stakeholders pushing for more transparency? How does transparency and peer review benefit the scientific community? And how does it benefit the public? And does transparent peer review address the limitations of traditional peer review? To answer these questions and more, I'd like to introduce my illustrious panel in no particular order. First, I'd like to welcome Tom Lang. Tom is the principal at Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Nice to be here. Tom has been a technical and medical writer uh, since 1975 and has written several books on the topic. He's also an award-winning teacher. And some of you might know him as a fellow at the American Medical Writers Association, a past president at the Council of Science Editors, and treasurer of the World Association of Medical Editors. Uh, most recently, uh, Tom spoke at this year's annual ISMTE meeting in Denver about transparency and what legitimate journals can do to signal to authors that they are not predatory publications. Uh, Tom, thanks for being here. And Michelle told me about that talk. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But yeah, Michelle told me uh, that she really enjoyed uh, your talk uh, there. Michelle English, um, who put that meeting together. So really looking forward Thank to you. it. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, next up, we have Allison Leung from the Public Library of Science. Allison is the editorial manager of PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases, two of PLOS's community journals. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Allison's been working in academic publishing for almost a decade, uh, previously worked at SAGE, where she uh, did a range of things, journals production, management, and acquisitions. And I saw Allison speak at the Council of Science Editors meeting in uh, Sa San Diego. Uh, Allison talked about... Uh, PLOS's current work with preprints. So, Allison, I'm really looking forward to your perspective. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've worked with PLOS for a long time here at J&J. &J, so, um, yeah, I know they always have some interesting uh, things going on as far as um, where publishing is going. Uh, next up, we have Dr. David B. Resnick, JD, PhD. 
Um, Dr. Resnick is a bioethicist and IRB chair at the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences at the NIH. Dr. Resnick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Resnick has a PhD in philosophy and has published over 200 articles on various topics in philosophy, bioethics, and is the author of eight books. Uh, he serves on several editorial boards and is an associate editor of the Journal of Accountability in Research. Uh, Dr. Resnick, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I've heard, um, I haven't heard you speak, but I have uh, several colleagues who, who have, and, and they, they were fans. So I'm looking forward to talking to you. And finally, we have Dr. Pedro T. Ramirez, MD. Dr. Ramirez is a David M. Gershenson Distinguished Professor in Ovarian Cancer Research and the Director of Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Ramirez, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Mike. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope everything's going all right over there in uh, southeastern Texas. You drying the sun up? is back out. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And you have electricity and internet, so... And food. And food. Perfect. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that you could join us, because um, Dr. Ramirez is the incoming editor-in-chief at the International Journal of Gynecologic Cancer. Uh, so um, I guess you've been uh, thinking a little bit about publishing and uh, journal policies. So really looking forward to hearing your perspectives today. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, that's our panel today. So let's jump right in to our first topic, which is what do we mean when we say transparency in review? So um, let me throw this first to Allison. What do we mean when we say transparency in review? Do you have uh, any perspectives on that? Yeah, so I think um, transparency to me is really about the reader and the authors being able to trust and have integrity in the peer review process. So right now peer review can be kind of a black box for authors and for the readers. The manuscript gets submitted to a journal and then it has to go through this peer review process and that can't, isn't right now very transparent. Um, so having more transparency in that peer review process means that the authors trust the decisions that are being made. They trust that the reviewers who are used are qualified, that they're doing a comprehensive review, that they don't have bias, they don't have conflicting interests, and that would also be the same for editors. So I think that comes in a lot of different forms. Um, and one of the ways now that is being discussed is sort of open peer review, which is not exactly transparency. It is a form of transparency, um, an open peer review would be a specific thing, um, which would be like having the reviews be published alongside the paper or having various shades of that, like maybe there's community review where papers are posted and people are writing reviews after the paper's already been posted. Um, it could mean having those reviews be anonymized, having the reviews be signed. So I think transparency can be a lot of things, um, but at the end of the day, it's really about integrity and about trust in the decision that's being made. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really good place to start um, because I, I am very curious on on sort of the researcher side. So I want to pivot over to Dr. Ramirez and, 
and, and kind of get your perspective on on how like helpful or important you think it would be to, to have a little more transparency on, on seeing the review process behind some of the papers you look at. Yes, thank you, Michael. And I think uh, Allison uh, uh, put it very, very well. Um, and I think that you know there, there are several issues with regards to the element of transparency. And I think that um, readers would value the benefit of having access to the feedback that was given to the authors by the reviewers um, prior to that uh, paper being published in its final form. Uh, because obviously the, it, it provides a, a, an even more in-depth evaluation of the uh, of the manuscript, and it lets the reader perhaps you know have uh, some additional information that that they would not have thought of, uh, about with regards to the to the paper or, or the topic at hand. I think that the the um, the issue of concern is beyond that point. Uh, in other words, for the authors to have access to uh, the uh, identification as to who is reviewing the manuscripts, I, I think that would probably not um, be very effective um, and, and probably it, it would detract from the, from the quality of the, uh, of the reviews that are, that are submitted. Um, and, and certainly I think that, you know, th there is also the point of, for the reviewer, knowing where the paper is coming from. And I know that there are some journals that um, submit the, the manuscripts to the reviewers without information as to who is the submitting author. Um, but I think I, obviously that has its pros and cons as well, and we, and we can elaborate further. But I think overall, with regards to this particular uh, point that Allison was making, I think certainly there would potentially be value in, in having information um, that was provided to the authors when that paper was uh, reviewed. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of value there. I think um, something I think about a lot is, is is yes, there is a lot about. Do we have? Do our do the readers have the time and inclination to, to dig into this? Say, um, if they were, you know, if there were reviews connected to a paper, do you think this is something that that you would read as you were, you know, doing research or background for a, for a paper that you were writing? You know, I think that for a major, uh, like for example, a phase three randomized trial in a very high reputable journal then that could be uh, of interest to the readers and certainly something that could be um, a, a link to, to a manuscript. But then, of course, obviously that would bring additional work and, 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 um, and potential use of resources to the, to the managing editors and the staff associated with that. And then, you know, frankly, sometimes the, the, you may have a manuscript that gets published uh, and there were three reviewers. Two of those were very uh, complimentary and, and proactive towards this being published. And another reviewer um, completely uh, the opposite, potentially. And, and, and as I said, you know, the other thing also is that, frankly, a lot, of, uh, a lot of times reviewers most likely would not use the language that they use if they knew that a review was going to be published and identified to them. Yes, that's something I, I saw a lot in the research I was doing putting this together was was that um, distinction where people really do communicate differently if, if they know it's going to be public or not. Um, so I, I, I'm really curious and, and sort of digging into that piece. I wanted to see, um, uh, Dr. Resnick, if you had any, any thoughts about 
um, maybe how reviewers might uh, come at a review if they know things are going to be um, public or, or versus not? Well, I think they tend to be more uh, definitely more measured and careful about their review. They may not be quite as honest and open. Sometimes reviewers use language that is kind of derogatory toward the uh, to the authors and really not very nice at all. Um, you see that, and uh, I think they would probably hesitate to have something like that um, in the public view. So I, I definitely think they might, you know, be more measured in their response if um, if things are going to be public. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And, and Tom, I wanted to know um, what you thought about that. You've, you've been working in, in this industry for, for a while now. Let's see if you had a perspective on on that sort of communication, the, the forthrightness or, or directness or sometimes maybe rudeness even of uh, – of an of a reviewer who who might really just be giving their honest opinion, but maybe their opinion is just not great. Do you do you think there is value in that, or or do you think perhaps the value of uh, other people actually seeing uh, reviewer perspectives outweighs that? Well, the the literature is pretty clear about the pros and cons of the different kinds of of review, <clears throat> whether it's single blinded, double blinded, open, um, or whatever. Uh, and yes, if you sign your name to it, people tend to be more polite. Uh, the concern is also, and it appears to be borne out by at least some research, that you also don't get the same level of, um, of critical appraisal that uh, reviewers hold back a little bit because they want to be nice. Uh, I think a, a cultural issue that I had not considered until I began to, to prepare for this podcast was that in many parts of the world, it is decidedly inappropriate for a junior person to criticize a senior person, which means that a signed open review <clears throat> um, has a lot of consequences for it other than just what happens in the, the scientific reading of the paper. Um, as a, a member of the executive committee of WHAMI, I will tell you that um, WHAMI supports you know, complete transparency in as many aspects of the journal as you can. You might go to the website and look at the uh, uh, WAMI's policy on, on journal transparency covers 16 different areas. Uh, and I think the, the underlying uh, reason for transparency, is, as Allison mentioned, is really trust. Um, making information available to people is, I think, um, a good thing generally because it allows people who want to think what they want is they want to know that they can trust the information that they're reading. And typically, um, the peer review process has been the beginning of the discussion about the research, not the end of it, but the beginning of it. And the peer review process was supposed to be that sort of stamp of, of quality that said, okay, now whatever else is going on, this is, this is what's here. The question then is how do you uh, produce the most objective and the high quality uh, peer reviews. Um, some evidence says transparency is a good thing. Some evidence says that maybe it's not. So, I think it's uh, I think it's a difficult question. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why when we started putting uh, this show together, ha that 
really struck us is is there were very strong arguments in, in all directions as far as how much transparency is good, how much borders into too much and actually starts to detract uh, from from what we're trying to get at. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that, that you all um, seem to agree that, that it all does center around trust because that really seemed to be the theme that came through uh, most strongly to me as well is, 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 is can, can you trust this article or this piece of information? How much information around it uh, do you need? And so um, I kind of want to just touch on uh, one of these articles I sent to you all, which is um, this article by Professor Kathleen Fahey uh, from Women in Birth, who uh, she's the editor-in-chief, and she basically wrote out an article uh, just laying out in, in pretty good detail um, their peer review process for her journal. And, and so this struck me as at least a, a good step in the direction of transparency. And I wanted to kind of get your perspective. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Resnick um, on if you think this adds uh, something to the level of trust people can have in this journal or, or if this is a, a good thing for, for all journals to do or, or if you think um, journals should go even further than this. Well, um, I, you know, transparency is a good thing, but part of the problem it, when you start laying out all your policies, too, is that you kind of box yourself into a position, and you also then you start opening yourself. The more you say your policy is, the more detail it is, the more that people are, that are un, dissatisfied with the process might then point to your policy and say, hey, you're not complying with your policy, blah, blah, blah. Why did you make this decision about our paper? So I think policies are definitely a good thing, but, you know, like I said, they can box you in, and sometimes you need some flexibility in terms of the decisions you're making. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't considered it uh, from that perspective, but but yeah, I think you're right that yeah. And that's that gets back to um, what Allison was saying, why so many journals kind of keep it a black box, because that, that gives them some some wiggle room uh, as far as decision making. Um, so, Allison, what do you think? Um, do you think that uh, laying out uh, policies is, is really important or do you feel like it, it's good to kind of like leave yourself a little space to uh, to freestyle? Well, I think that there is a balance. Like, I, I agree with David that if you say specifically it's going to happen like step one, step two, step three, the minute it deviates from that, you might get somebody who's like, what, but wait, you didn't go through exactly as you outlined it. Um, but I think that being transparent about like what the idealized or what the general process is is really important for readers and it's really important for authors because you don't want them to feel like they submitted their paper to a journal and well now what well three months from now i'm going to get some decision and is that decision going to have been made with rigor like how many reviewers is it going to you know you want to have some you want them to have some kind of expectation of what that process is going to be like um i actually liked what they had laid out i think they were pretty generic in what they were saying that like generally it goes through like this kind of triage and this is generally like what the different types of decision-making processes like. Um, I think that is important for people to have, especially I think for authors, because it can be such a stressful process for them. Um, and having that kind of, having the the process behind what the decision is will help people accept the decision when it comes in and see that as something that they can trust and believe in. 
right. Um, I want to uh, throw it over to Dr. Ramirez. And, and since you are about to be an editor-in-chief yourself, um, is this something you would do? Um, and, and I don't want to box you in if, if you don't want to be boxed in sure. on, on this <laughs> decision. Um, but uh, do you think um, you would be interested in po possibly laying out sort of uh, your general journal decision-making policies? Well, I think it's, uh, it's completely fine to um, outline the process in terms of what happens to the manuscript once it reaches the, the journal. And, and I think that's completely okay. Uh, and and that, that way the submitting author has a reference point with regards to how many reviewers are going to review the paper, uh, whether the paper is going to go immediately to reviewers versus an initial evaluation by an associate editor and make an immediate decision within 24 hours, how long the, the reviewers are expected to, to take to, to uh, write their, their reviews and, and when you should anticipate um, getting that information back to you. I think that laying out that process is okay. I think that when you go beyond that, I think that that will be a problem. Um, and I think that uh, this could would potentially um, not work very well um, in regards to providing transparency as to who the reviewers are going to be. Uh, for a particular manuscript, because even now, uh, obviously, having the experience of being the associate editor for the Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecology, uh, even when it is completely blinded, uh, we often will get a response back from uh, an author or a group of authors uh, telling us they completely disagree with, uh, with the uh, reviews that were submitted and that they demand for them to be sent to somebody else. Uh, they don't even know who the reviewers are. So I think that if you were to provide transparency as to who the manuscripts were going to, then that, that would bring another layer of, uh, of potential confrontation where a, a, a particular author may not feel that the person you're sending it to is the best uh, person to review your manuscript, that that person may have a conflict of interest with your work, uh, that that person may be a junior person, uh, that that person may not be from the same area that you're focusing your objective on the manuscript. So I think that beyond the point of just outlining what the process is going to be for the manuscript once it gets to the journal, um, I don't think that it's a, it's a good idea. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that perspective. Yeah, I think you, you definitely want to leave yourself some space to, uh, to navigate um, through these potentially treacherous waters. Um, Tom, did you have any uh, perspectives on, on as far as journal laying things out or, or the potential uh, pitfalls, I guess, uh, behind uh, certain kinds of transparent peer review? Sure. Um, I think the only issue we're talking about with transparency that is controversial is do you publish the review with the paper and do you publish the reviewer's name with his or her review? The, the mechanisms of what happens in a journal I think there's pretty wide agreement, <clears throat> at least among WAMI members, that that should be on the, the website with the instructions for authors. It should be clear. It should be complete. Uh, again, I refer you to the policy of transparency on the WAMI website. Uh, partly this is important because uh, predatory open access journals do not include a lot of this material. Um, so it's, you know, anything the good guys can do on a website, the bad guys can do too. So it's not a uh, preventive, uh, sure thing, but 
the full disclosure of how the journal works is a hallmark of a legitimate journal, and the uh, lack of documentation of that on the website is a red flag for a potential predatory journal. So I think that when we talk about transparency, the real issue is um, if the article is rejected, do you give the name of the peer reviewer? If the article is published uh, and accepted, do you publish the review with the name of the peer reviewer? Those in the literature, it seems to me that those are the real, uh, those just those two or three decisions are the ones that are the most controversial. Gotcha. So, if I, if I that, Tom, I would say that um, if the first were to be the case, you would have no reviewers uh, because no one would want their name uh, to be published uh, after you reject a, a manuscript. And I think that that would be uh, very, very challenging. And then the, for, the, for the second option, I think that then most likely then you will be restricting yourself to publishing only the reviews of the ones that actually accepted the paper. Uh, so in other words, if you have a m manuscript that was reviewed by three reviewers, two were major revisions, um, one was a rejection, then do you as, a, as an editor say, well, I'm just going to publish the two favorable ones rather than the, the other one because obviously the other one does not want to be identified as the one that rejected the paper. And even, even the, other, the other issue with that is that even when somebody accepts the paper, a lot of times, you know, it may, it may become an issue where you say, well, I submitted this manuscript to Lancet, but God, you know, you, you, you could have been a lot easier on me. Why did you send in 26 comments? And then it becomes this retaliation or this, uh, this potential anger against somebody else within your field. So th these, are, these are all things that, that need to be considered. Yeah, well, I want to be real clear. I'm not supporting or re refuting any of these options. I'm just looking at the literature. Uh, mm -hmm. And you're right. You identified the problems that everybody agrees are there. Um, you know, if you sign your name to something, how how honest can you really be? And if you don't sign right. your name to something, you know, are you subject to all these biases? And clearly, there's lots of evidence to show that. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that um, no matter what happens. We need to come up with a cadre of, of peer reviewers who are better trained to do peer review, just in the objective technical sense. And I think part of that also is a lot of training and just professionalism. Uh, you know, there's no need to be um, snarky in comments. I mean, a professional deals with the issues here without getting involved in it. And I think it's kind of a failing of, of the institution of science globally that there isn't more uh, you know, professional disagreements rather than the, the kinds of, you know, very inflammatory things, and we've all seen them. Uh, yes. You know, it's very common. Um, and I have certainly felt that way. Every paper I, I submit comes back with reviews. One of the reviewers could not possibly have read the paper and reviewed it, you know. Right. Uh, and so you get a couple of days, you, you wait till that frustration goes by, and then you deal with the issues at hand. But um, I think that the I, professionalism is a teachable, solvable problem. And I'm not so much concerned about that uh, personally as I am with this larger issue of bias, either consciously or unconscious bias. I agree. Great. And, and I'd love to get um, Dr. Resnick's perspective as well as, as the editor or an associate editor of the Journal of uh, Accountability and Research. This seems to be right up your alley. So um, as far as people being accountable in research and 
and and how accountable should uh, people be as far as uh, their reviewer comments go? I think they should be completely accountable. I mean, you have people's careers that are at stake in terms of these comments. I think you you have to be very very serious about your comments and be able to back them up um, if you you know when you make them and. You shouldn't review something that you're not really competent to review, and you shouldn't review a paper if you haven't read it, if you don't plan to read it carefully. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say reviewers have to be as accountable as anyone in the whole process. That makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, that is all the time we have for our first segment. So we're going to take uh, a little break for our guests and uh, for our listeners. We will uh, see you tomorrow because so, that'll do it. Um, so we attempted today to sort of define what transparency means in peer review. Um, so tomorrow we'll talk a little bit about how transparency will benefit the scientific community. So um, if you enjoyed that, please come back tomorrow and remember to visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com and follow the hashtag peerrevwk17 uh, throughout peer review week to follow all the happenings. And so for Tom Lang, Allison Leung, Dr. David Resnick, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez. I'm Michael Cast, and we'll see you tomorrow.